Well, we're going to grab our Bibles and turn with intention and purpose to Acts chapter 17, continuing our series through this book. And before we launch into the passage, let me pray for us this morning. Father, we thank you for your words, particularly at this time, that are able to encourage and exhort and correct and direct and are sharper than a two-edged sword to reveal and to show us the true state of our hearts before you. And I simply pray this morning in our time together, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would move and that you'd do whatever it is that you desire to do. We thank you, as we often do, Lord, that you're not limited by time, by space, by physical location, but you can speak to us, you can move in our hearts and our lives, wherever it is that we find ourselves at this particular moment. So come and have your way. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done for the glory of your name. May this be the day where your people arise to reflect more fully the glory and the grace and the majesty of who you are, that we might shine like lights in the midst of a never-darkening world. We pray that in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Acts chapter 17 is where we're picking up the account from this morning. If you've been following along the series, you'll know that we're in a passage of the book of Acts where Paul finds himself in Athens. It's somewhat of a coincidental trip. He's driven away from the previous location that he was in due to the uprest that had happened in the city and almost found himself accidentally in the middle of Athens. And we read in verse 16, it says, As he found himself there, his spirit was greatly provoked, some translations say, stirred within him. There was a stirring that really came from the Lord at what he saw all around him. And we're not told specifically what it was that stirred him, although he does speak about the idolatry. Was it the idolatry? Was it immorality? Was it the godlessness? Was it the systems of power? We're not told, but there's a great provocation within his spirit. And we've talked about that reality, that there are seasons in which we are and should feel provoked about the things that are going on around us. And of course, there's a good sort of provoking and there's a not sort of good provoking as well, which is a sermon for another day. So we, we do feel provoked. I felt provoked even this past week in different ways. There's a season where there is a lot of things happening around and in and of itself. That's not a bad thing. My kids were quite provoked when the government announced another month of lockdown and six weeks at least of home schooling. We, we are human. There is provocations that will, can, and will continue to happen. And what's really important is what we do with that. And that's what I love about Paul. See, it says he was provoked. What is his response? Well, his response, first of all, we talked about this a few weeks ago, wasn't to run and hide, wasn't to respond in fear. He responds in faith. He says, there's something that I've got to do. I need to respond. And what is it that he does? Well, the second thing is he responds in faith, but he responds in love. He responds in love. He, he goes out of his way to find people, anybody, Literally, the context of the verse is he traveled from the, the marketplace to the synagogues to the places where they'd hold debates in that time and that anywhere he could find people, his heart was moved. 
Not to come and confront them, but to come and to, to love them, to share the good news of the gospel. He's provoked by faith. He was provoked to love and he was provoked to proclaim. He was provoked to preach. And so we've been examining the specifics or some of the specifics of this particular sermon that he preaches here, the so-called Sermon on Mars Hill, looking at some of these different aspects and elements. And of course, if you followed along last week, Adam dove into the first part of that message, this great message as Paul proclaims the futility of just continuing to search for the unknown. You've even got an idol, he says, to the unknown God. He says, well, let me tell you that futility has come to an end and there is a God that you can know and not just know about, but know personally. He's opened our eyes to see who he is and invited us into relationship with him. What an incredible reality that is. And let's pick up the story from the second half of verse 25. Paul says this, remember he's midway through this sermon. He says, he himself being God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Life, breath, and just in case you missed it, everything else as well. He's given us everything. That includes everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. That's the purpose for our existence, that we would seek Him, that we would come to saving faith, the the knowledge of who He is and what He's done for us, that they should seek Him and perhaps feel their way towards Him, yet He's not actually far from each one of us. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how that kind of indicates that Paul's saying that's the mission, but, but something has kind of held us back. Something has has separated us from God. And we'll talk about his concluding statements and what that is and what the solution is next week. But he goes on, he says, Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for this is the reality. In him we live and we move and we have our being. We live and we move and we have our being. That'll prove the essence and the foundation of our time together this morning. He continues, as even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. In him we live and we move and we have our being. What is it that Paul is trying to convey? What is it that he's trying to get across in the midst of this? He's saying, the the futile search has ended. There is a God who's made himself known. Last week's message, and here's the reality of that. It's in Him that we live. It's in Him that we move. It's in Him that we have our being. He's given us everything that we have, life and breath and everything else. You see, He's saying this effectively. He's saying He's made us, He defines us, and we cannot define anything else without reference to Him. If you want to know the sum of your life, the purpose of your life, isn't that the ultimate question? Isn't that why we're here? Isn't that what so many hungry hearts are searching for? As no doubt these Athenians were, well, why are we really here? What what is the purpose of our being? What is this all about? And Paul is saying, let me know this. Let me make this clear to you. Let there be no shadow of doubt in your mind, your purpose 
is him. And it's found in him and in him alone. You want your life to count. You want your life to have meaning and substance. You want to move from futility and to, to purposefulness. It is found in him. So let's just think about that. I want to perhaps put it in our context because... I'm convinced that although the terms change, the terms of engagement, the, the futility, the searching remains. You see, in, in our culture, there's a prevailing worldview. We're in a, what we could call a post-Christian era, which I know sometimes we struggle with. Uh, someone recently said to me, it's a little bit like we've switched from being the, the home team to the away team. Now, when you're the home team of a, uh, a soccer team, a football team, you're You've got the home crowd advantage. You guarantee that it doesn't matter even you know, if you're, you're not doing so well. The crowd is, is on your side. They're, they're just cheering you on and there's noise that can lift you up and, and the affirmation and accolades of the crowd. Whereas when you're the away team, you, know, you need to be far more aware of your game because it doesn't matter. Even if you, you do the most amazing play that you've ever done, you can guarantee that there's not going to be the shouts of accolades coming from the crowd. There's going to be uh, opposition that comes against you. And that's the season that we find ourselves in the midst of. There's a prevailing post-Christian worldview that is all around us. We could call it an atheistic, an agnostic, modern secularism, a humanist point of view. Any of these terms and more. But this is the essence of what it comes down to. As Richard Dawkins, the, the famous atheist, he said this in his book, River of Eden, a Darwinian view of life. And I want us just to think about the prevailing worldview and how it is that we can grab a hold of and proclaim and preach the glorious message of the gospel in the midst of it. This is what he says. He says, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. That is a conclusion that he's reached and made publicly on many different occasions. He's saying effectively this, there is an inescapable reality. This is the the cry of the crowd. This is what is taught in our schools to our young people, that there is ultimately no purpose. We are a purposeless people living a purposeless existence. That's what the universe tells us. That's what we can learn and glean. A purposeless universe. You know, it's no wonder, is it, that we have now a generation of young people who are profoundly lost when that is what we have taught them as truth. So what do we do with that then? I mean, how how do we then process this reality that, well, as Dawkins puts it, there's no purpose? Well, one particular solution is Stephen Jay Gould, an American paleontologist, evolutionary biologist, he expounds upon that premise in this way. He says, well, we may yearn for a higher answer, but look, none exists And this explanation, though superficially troubling, if not terrifying, it's ultimately liberating and exhilarating. What's he saying? He's saying following this line of reason that's put forward, this is our path to ultimately being a liberated people, as if we learn to give up the search for meaning at all. It doesn't exist, so just forget about it and you will find ultimate liberation. Now, that is a view that's held and defended. However, for most 
for most people, it's both intellectually and practically untenable. I mean, you can try it yourself. Try waking up in the morning, looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, praise God I'm alive for no purpose at all and praise not God because I don't believe in God and here I am living my meaningless, purposeless existence. I guarantee you, you won't find it liberating. In fact, most of us would find that downright depressing. And so a more common secularist view of meaning can be summarized as follows. Well, life has no ultimate meaning, but each of us has meaning. And this is what Joseph Campbell, an American professor and philosopher, concludes. Each of us has meaning within us. We bring it to life. It's a waste of time, he says, to be asking the question when you and I are in fact the answer. Now, I would suggest probably this is the popularized, the more contemporary perspective of how we live meaningful, purposeful existence. We've just got to look inside. We've got to elevate the self. We've got to find something within us. In other words, there's no absolute meaning, but we can define our own meaning by determining or creating meaning to be whatever we want. Now, I would say, indeed, there is a measure of meaningful, purposeful existence that can be found as we look within ourselves, finding joy in little things. But it is at best limited, temporary, and superficial. One of the quotes I've used before that I like the most in this area is from uh, the author of the Young Atheist's Handbook, and this particular young lady, she says this, Yes, of course, I know that life is ultimately without meaning or purpose, but the trick is to not wake up every morning and feel that way. Cognitive dissonance, question mark, she asks. Just embrace it. Create a, create a sense of meaning and purpose by doing something useful with your life. Teach, be creative, not in a poncy hipster way. I mean, make a curry, build a bookshelf, write a poem, and if you're really stuck, eat rice and dal. Physically filling yourself with the food you love really does feel the emptiness you may feel inside. Now that's her conclusion and isn't that revealing? I feel a little as Paul I'm sure felt as he preached to the Athenians saying, I, I see you're chasing something, I see you searching for something. The problem is this, the end of your search is simply this, it's limited, it might warm your stomach, it might tickle your intellect. But it's, it's temporary. You'll always be searching for new ideas. You'll still be hungry tomorrow. You'll need something else to fill your bellies. And it's superficial. It doesn't really deal with any of the significant issues of life around us. It's only found by thinking very, very small, isn't it? That's, that's where I derive my meaning from, not asking any big questions. Well, why do you want to fill your belly? Well, so I can feel satisfied. Why do you want to be satisfied? Well, so I can live. But why do you want to... There is no, by definition, big or absolute answers that can be given. At best, it's a relatively determined or self-created, superficial, shallow meaning. That's what Paul is crying to the Athenians. That's my encouragement for for each of us to examine this morning. Isn't there something more? Surely there's something more to life than just filling our bellies with food and our minds with new ideas. Well, the good news is that there is. And this is what Paul gives 
to the Athenians and to us with such great clarity. He's saying, examine this. There's a God. Life is his idea. He has given us everything. See, Christian purpose and meaning has a breath so encompassing, it stretches from eternity past to eternity future. From the beginning, it's his story. Ordained, created in love, he predestined us. It encompasses and enlightens every breath which he proclaims comes from God. Every breath is his gift that we might seek to know him and to love him and to live in fellowship with him. Not only that, but Christian meaning is it's fixed, it's immovable, it's unshakable. Life has inherent worth, significance, value. We're created as image bearers to proclaim the greatness of who he is to those around us. We didn't determine it. We didn't derive it based on our circumstances. We just get to live in the greatness of his story. The world didn't give it and the world can't take it away. You see, the believer, for those who would trust in the good news of the gospel, there's a capacity to sit back and to savor every angle, every perspective. We find more meaning the bigger we look, the more we examine the greatness of who he is and we gain this breathtaking perspective to illuminate every aspect of the journey, every aspect of our lives. See, I feel Paul's frustration as he's provoked, as he's proclaiming this message. He's saying to the Athenians, you're searching, but it's a futile search. Don't just look within. It's shallow. It's limited. It's temporary. You don't have to live small. Just for a moment, look up and examine this claim and the reality of the God I believe in who's rescued and redeemed me. And see how once you take the blinkers off, there is a glorious reality beyond anything you could imagine. Stop just filling your heads with knowledge and your stomachs with food. Is that really how you want to live when there's so much more on offer here? It's certain, it's complete, and it's satisfying, matchless in its grandeur, and unrivaled in its promise and its power. I want to bring this to a conclusion just with a little story that I've used before, and perhaps it's one that's more pertinent in front of my mind in the midst of a season where we can't travel. Thinking back to some of those traveling stories and what it will be like if ever we get on a plane again and get to head anywhere that's not between the lounge room, living room, and the bedroom. But my wife and I, we did this trip some years ago before we had kids. We decided to do a bit of traveling. We headed overseas, did a bit of a around-the-world trip, went through Asia, uh, headed to the UK, visit f- some family there. Uh, Europe eventually ended up in the US and Canada. But we did, as part of our Europe uh, portion of the trip, we went on a, a bus tour, as you do. We did a few things ourselves and thought, what's well, a great opportunity to see, I think it was something like 14 countries in 12 days, and you know, we were at that stage, we didn't have a a lot of dollars in the bank account, so we're looking for a cheaper option, and we came across this particular bus tour group. We should have known instantly from the name of it, but uh, it was termed Budget Expeditions was the name that it was promoted, and certainly it lived up to its name 
in every aspect of the word. So we embarked on this budget expedition. It was a camping trip across the uh, different, different countries of Europe and we were traveling and the bus broke down on various occasions. We were sleeping in tents that leaked when it rained. The uh, air mattresses that you had to blow up yourself, they deflated during the night. The uh, food which was cooked by the onboard chef was, uh, let's just say, not always up to uh, our usual expectations. But I was grumbling in the midst of this trip thinking, I've spent all this money, I've come all this way, and here I am enduring this budget expedition. And until this one moment, and I think it was one of the particular days we've been stuck by the roadside for a few hours thinking, you know, this is ridiculous, maybe we should just quit and head somewhere else. And we'd headed through the night as the day hadn't quite gone according to plan, ended up in this uh, little village in the midst of Switzerland, Lauterbrunnen was the village, and pitched the tents in the dark, and I'll never forget waking up the next morning. Woke up, sore back after sleeping on a mattress that had gone flat, yet again, stomach filled with who knows what the night before. And then as we woke up, all I could hear, first thing I remember is the the ring of the cowbells around, the sound of, of water as the sun kind of peeked into the valley, and all of a sudden opened my tent, and this is no pastoral exaggeration here, but it was the most spectacular vista that I've ever seen, completely breathtaking as we surveyed this little valley that we'd ended in, these towering peaks, the waterfall, uh, it was four or five waterfalls that were flowing down, it was in the summer, and of course there's water and greenery and, and the aroma of fresh flowers everywhere, and literally it was the most beautiful, natural space or place that I'd ever found myself in. And it's funny, isn't it? In the midst of that, all of a sudden, the, the broken down bus and the, the bumpy mattress and the, the average food, all of a sudden, it didn't matter so much as I was caught up in the, the greatness and the grandeur and the vastness of this particular perspective. And I remember for three days we spent there just... The only thing on my lips was, this is amazing. Can you believe this? I said that to my wife. I said that to the locals. I think they were like, yeah, this is, <laughs> this is where we live. This is just normal for us. But for me, it was breathtakingly spectacular. And for those three days, all the troubles were seemingly forgotten. I quickly remembered them later on the trip, but that's another story. But for those moments, just so caught up, in the greatness and the beauty and the majesty and the splendor of what was around us. And so I want to encourage us in the midst of the season we're in, maybe it's a little bumpy, maybe it feels like we're a little stuck by the side of the road, maybe there is that sense of, you know, what, what, what are we doing? Where are we going? How is this all fitting in with, with any bigger purpose? And I want us for a moment just to have that encounter again with the greatness of who God is and his purposes and plans for us. Just Would you just close your eyes for a moment, wherever you are, if that's possible. If you're driving in the car, you can keep them open. But I just want you to turn your attention to him. Fix your gaze upon him. I want you to, you know, in a spiritual sense, just part open the, the door of your tent and just be captured again by the beauty and the majesty of who he is by the greatness of His love and His goodness and His kindness. I want us to see that. I want us to savor that. 
And I want it to produce within us something so profound that we would then spend the rest of the time that we have here on the planet, not only caught up in it, but bringing everybody who would listen, who would have eyes to see and ears to hear into that incredibly glorious reality of a God far more breathtaking and His grace far more majestic than any mountain vista, than any joy, than any pleasure, than any purpose, than anything that this world could possibly offer us. And so, Father, I just pray this morning as we bring this time to a conclusion, Lord, I ask that there be a capacity for your people, each and every one of us. Lord, would you help us lift our eyes? Would you help us to be caught up again in the breathtakingly wonderful vastness of your grace and your mercy and majesty? Lord, help us be a people who move from the futility of just trying to create and define meaning within ourselves and we rest in the reality of the God in whom we move and have our being, the God who gives us breath, breath for a purpose. Lord, would we see everything around us, every situation and, and circumstance as an opportunity both to be caught up in the great story of your salvation as it unfolds and with a passionate desire to, to bring others in, to invite them to see and to savor, and then to go speak and to spend their days proclaiming the greatness of who you are. Lord, I just pray for fresh encouragement. I pray for fresh courage this morning. I pray for fresh refreshment and energy where that's needed. But more than anything else, Lord, as I continue to pray for myself and each and every one of us, give us eyes to see what it is that you're doing, what it is that you're saying. We want to partner with your kingdom and your kingdom purposes at this time. Not getting caught up in the, the kingdoms and the issues and the problems of this world. So Lord, just help us where we need it this morning. Bring that refreshment and that recalibration of our hearts. And may we launch into this coming week with a fire in our hearts and a great sense of purpose leading us forth into all that you have for us. I pray that in your matchless, glorious and wonderful name, the name of Jesus. Amen.